Hi, my name is Abby Gay. I beat the awesome path by leveraging the voices of marginalized communities. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help us all see the bigger picture in our lives and careers. And I want to show you that so much more is possible in this one life we have to live than you might have been taught. Now, Robbie Gay is the founder and CEO of Teach for Senegal, which seeks to raise educational outcomes in Senegal so that one day every Senegalese child feels seen, loved, and liberated. She has a remarkable story that brought her from her native Senegal to the United States as a refugee. And here in the States, she dedicated her life to social justice issues and a series of career choices and observations led her to returning to Senegal to create a program called Teach for Senegal that gives young Africans the room to finally solve their own issues without aid and prepare children for the real world. Hers is an inspiring tale of following your heart and your intuition. So I can't wait to introduce you today to Robbie Gay. Well, that's a fabulous way to start. Thank you so much for joining me today, Robbie. So first of all, where are you calling in from? I am in Dakar, Senegal, currently based here. Dakar, Senegal. And we had a few issues getting this set up. We had to work around uh, some outages, but we're here now. So I'm so glad to have you. Thank you very much for joining me today. I can't wait to hear your story. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, technical difficulties, but that's that's what happens when you work in <laughs> rural communities sometimes. That's right. We've had it before, and that's what happens when you're doing this via Zoom. But the benefit yeah. is that we can also talk to each other from thousands of miles away. So overall, it's a, it's a good thing. Why don't yeah. you tell us what it is? What have you been up to? What are you working on? Yeah, I am... So, I'm currently the founder and CEO of Teach for Senegal, which is a uh, local organization that works on tackling educational inequity um, by recruiting young young leaders and having them commit to teaching in their own communities using indigenous knowledge and working alongside local community leaders. Um, I'm also a former teacher. I taught in the U.S. for three years uh, before moving back to my home country of, of Senegal. Okay, so were you born in Senegal? Yes, I was born in Senegal um, up until I was about uh, seven years old. Um, between the ages of seven and eight, I moved to the U.S. as a refugee. Um, and that's where I did all my studies. I, I Basically, I'm Senegalese-American. Um, okay. I know the U.S. more than I know Senegal, but my parents were very, very traditional Senegalese. Sure. So. So you moved there. Um, were you in Arizona? I think I saw that you went to Arizona State University, if I'm not mistaken. Was that where you came to? Yeah. So when we moved to the U.S., Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. <laughs> our first, you know, entry into the U.S. And I went to college there. I did my uh, undergrad there, my grad school there as well, Arizona State University. So you grew up in an oven, basically. That's the way I think of Phoenix. <laughs> I, I've been there once in my life, and it was dark, and it was still 100 degrees. And I thought, what is happening out here? And it was 120 degrees the next day. <laughs> um, I, yeah, if you are not used to it, Phoenix is, it's hot. It's <sighs> really hot. Um, you know, we call it the dry heat. So that's, I guess yeah. that, that's better than the humidity. Like, I can do the dry heat. But if you send me to Texas, true. in the south, I'm like, I can't. I can't that's even that. worse. That's, yeah, that's way worse. And in Phoenix, I remember they have all those little misters blowing at you in a mall. You know, those little, that was key. That was the only way that I survived. It was just a short trip, but I needed those. I found them and I was like, okay, I'm never leaving here. That's what yeah, I need to be in. Those are the best things, I think, during yeah. the summer. You, you like, just find uh, one of those and you stay there. I can survive. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. So you, you survived the heat. You made it all the way through college. You graduated from uh, Arizona State University. And didn't I see, you got a master's degree as well, right? Or Yeah, I have a okay. master's degree in elementary education. Okay. So at what point in your education or in your time in the U.S., what point did you decide that this mission was something that you wanted to do? Yeah, that, that when people ask me that question, it's really difficult to answer because I think I've had like several incidences in my life that have led to where I am today. 
I, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, you know, what would I be doing? I thought I would be like a lawyer somewhere in the UN making lots of money. Right. Um, <laughs> so God led me to this work and it's, and it's, you know, something that I'm so grateful for. But, you know, I grew up with, first off, I think it really started off with just my upbringings. Uh, I grew up with a father who was very much like an advocate. Um, in Mer- so we lived between the borders of Mauritania and Senegal, which is like in Northern Africa. Um, he was very much always protesting for the rights of indigenous black people. Um, and then I grew up with a mother who was also illiterate, um, but she was very book savvy, very uh, entrepreneurial because she had to raise her kids when my father would get in trouble with the law because of protesting all this stuff. Mm. So she would always have to come up with like side businesses and kind of have to send, uh, make you know, support my siblings and I. Yeah. And so growing up with, you know, with an illiterate mother and a father who is very much like a, a advocate uh, really helped with identity and culture. Um, and then when we moved to the United so when I lived in the U.S., uh, in Senegal, all the way until the age of seven, I actually never went to school. I didn't even know mm. that existed. Uh, the formal schooling, I guess, I didn't know that existed. It wasn't until I moved to the United States at the age of, you know, around the time I was eight when I started school in the U.S. And that was my first time entering like a school and learning how to read and write and, Mm -hmm. you know, like actually understanding the concept of formal schooling. Um, I think that was the first for all of us because my mom and my siblings, none of us really went to school. My dad, he, you know, went to formal schooling, but it wasn't much. And so it was trying to navigate this life in the U.S., but also understanding, like, why is, like, and also realizing, like, why isn't this something that existed when when we lived in Senegal? Mm. Um, And seeing my mother really struggle with not being able to read and write in the U.S. um, and having to kind of grow up quickly because I needed to teacher I when my when there was parentship conference and I had to translate or my one of my siblings had to translate or when there was a doctor's appointment and you had to explain everything uh, and it was hard because I was just young myself trying to figure out what was happening but my parents were relying on my siblings and I um, then you know I, I went to high school college all with this kind of having to support my family and having to you know uh, continuously translate. Um, and it wasn't really until college that this concept of like educational inequity really, uh, I started to really focus on that mm. because I would work, there was just seemed to be a, a repetitive issue when I would meet other refugees from other countries. Um, I volunteered a lot. And so I would always meet refugees who also were just like my mom, couldn't read and write and just are having a difficult time navigating the space. And the question of education equity, why does it exist and why is it that other people have access and some people don't? I really began to explore that during my senior year of, of, of college, um, during my undergrad. Um, this led me to India where I volunteered um, in what they call the slums of India. and. Uh, just really the inequities were just in your face, the class difference. And, and that's where my, my, I, I was pursuing a degree in international relations, thinking that I could, you know, tackle education, tackle inequities and, and uh, social justice issues by becoming a lawyer. But it was really in India, I realized if I want to change a system, a society, I have to start with the educational system first. Um, education is, is the base for all development, health, um, economic. And so um, that when I returned from India, I was recruited by Teach for America. And uh, I wanted to really understand the concept of teaching and the, the root causes of educational inequity. And so allowing me to uh, teaching really allowed me to see that uh, uh, even in the U.S., I taught in South Phoenix, which is considered, I guess, the ghetto hmm. of Phoenix. And it's where I grew up. So I just thought it was nice to, to, to teach kids in my own community. But yeah. um, teaching there, you know, I 
was able to work with a lot of uh, refugees or those who just came from Mexico and didn't speak any English. And sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 I saw the importance of representation. Some of these students, they were the first time they ever had a black teacher. It was the first time they ever had someone that looked like them, um, that understood really their struggles. And um, that was also where I learned like curriculums and who makes it and standards and these ways that we measure learning that are so backwards, so unrealistic. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's where I got the model of teach for teach for Senegal. Mm. I thought, you know, you know, I traveled back and forth to Senegal during my my college years and my high school years, and it was always the same issue when I would travel. Like nobody was going to school. It was normal not to go to school. There, like my cousins, my my nobody was going to school. But I, um, you know, I didn't know how I could bring about change until I joined Teacher America and that idea came to me. And after my two years, I decided to take the model of Teacher America and contextualize it to my context. It's always important to, you know, to, to, to contextualize and, and to look at the root causes of inequity in, in, in each country or each community. And so um, moved back in 2019 after receiving a, a stipend from Echoing Green, I had applied. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship, but there was this uh, Echoing Green that was looking for, you know, young entrepreneurs who are, you know, out there trying to change the world. And I applied and I was so thankful to have gotten that grant. And, and that allowed me to move and start Teach for Senegal um, and, and, and allowed me to really contextualize the model where we're looking at it far, we, like, it allowed me to see how deep education equity is in Senegal. It's so colonial and it's so systematic. Um, and so we, our goal with our vision as Teach for Senegal is to really liberate Senegalese children and so that every, every child in Senegal could be seen, loved and liberated and also have um, access to quality education that reflects them, an educational system they can see themselves in. And so with that, we recruit young people within our placement communities, and we have them commit to teaching for two years. But it's more of how do we use Indigenous knowledge, how do we use local languages to really um, make uh, enhance the learning of, of children? Because we are come from a colonial uh, we're French colonized um, and it's very much still a French system. Everything is done in French. Um, our literature is, is about France and what is a young kid living in a remote village in Senegal learning about the Eiffel Tower or London, London Versailles. Mary had a little lamb when right. they don't even know where Mary is. Um, and, right. and instead of them learning about things that are, are really there for their survival skills because that's the purpose of education. It's, it's, it's survival. It's, it's, and it looks different from each country and it, it, and it has to because each country is different in each community. And so uh, we don't use, we, we've designed our own model that reflects our communities and we really hope to um, one day that these kids can use their own languages in, in the global arena um, but also really be proud of where they come from and be able to understand their history and their culture. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did I answer your question? That does. <laughs> and now it's time for a segment we like to call Ask the Streets. All right, so the topic of this week is education and communities around the world, poverty-stricken areas. What do you think is the most important thing about education globally? Well, it depends on the countries, but my country, Bangladesh, it was accessibility because we're in a flood-prone country. So during the monsoon season, kids cannot get to school. So nowadays we have school on the boat. So those boats go around the villages and conduct daily schools. So our education rate has gone up from the 60s all the way through 80s, it was like 30%. Now we're at almost 75% literacy rate. 
So what do you think the most important thing that kids need to learn in school or from the school system is? Basic education. What is basic fundamental education? Fundamental education, being able to read and write and add, subtract, and understand the, uh, the global uh, impact we all leave behind. That's the most important thing in my point of view. Do you think entrepreneurship is an important skill for kids? Absolutely, and especially in the third world countries and developing countries in Bangladesh, India, and Africa, you'll find children that are 10 years old are self-employed, even though they're going to school, but they all have their own small businesses. Okay, great, thank you for your input, and we'll get back to the show. You're welcome. There's a lot that I could dive in on so many of those things. First of all, I want to know what kind of side businesses did your mom have? What were her side hustles? Real quick, real quick. Yeah, my mom, she was, she had, so it's very normal to have agricultural stuff. So she grew her own crops and would sell at the market. She was made, like sold jewelry, um, you know, to just make ends meet. And so... Okay. Got it. Side hustle. She had side, side hustle. hustle. Yeah, that's great. We always feature love entrepreneurial things on this show. Fabulous. <laughs> so, what language was being spoken at home when you were growing up? Uh, in the U.S., it was very much uh, Pular, which is my native tongue. It uh, comes from the Fulani people of, of Africa, um, and my parents were very much about don't forget your language. Once you forget your language, you've got you've lost your culture and your identity. So, in at home. It was 100% Pilar. They don't care what language you spoke outside of the house. But, and that's, that really helped me because when I moved back to Senegal, I was able to speak with my cousins in Pilar. And they were very amazed that, you know, I lived in the U.S. for this many years and was still fluent. And I'm so grateful for my parents because um, language is everything. So quick, quick side note. Which country has the best food? Senegal. Of but, course. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it for sure. <laughs> What's the, what is the, what's your favorite food there? What? Nigerians and, and Ghanaians, there's yeah. this competition between jollof rice. I just want to oh, let you know, rice. And, your, and your listeners to know that jollof rice originated in Senegal and we make the best food. <laughs> See, that's very funny because one of my good friends is Nigerian and she has referenced this repeatedly. So I'm sure she'll be very upset to hear that. Um, but for this episode, I believe you. I'm going to go with Senegalese jollof rice from now on. I'm going to start an argument here and now. <laughs> I knew it. Yes, I would love to, love to go. Let's talk a little bit about... So I, I was reading up on your website and I saw a few things. And the statistics are not good when it comes to education, right? It, I think I read that less than half of the citizens are literate at the moment. 60% of children living in rural communities never attend school. So there's clearly a challenge for you to solve here. Um, I do want to get into that, but I guess I'd had one other quick question. How was it moving out and then moving back? Had things changed in the time that you'd spent in the U.S.? Uh, was it largely the same? Do you even remember before you came? I mean, seven years old, that's pretty young. Yeah, um, there was a huge uh, reverse culture crash, I guess, um, because the, the Senegal you know, that my parents told me about in the U.S., I always just envisioned it to being this almost, you know, this paradise state type of vibe. And I'm just thinking, like, it's perfect. It's, it's just Senegal. Nothing, nothing bad happens there. Everything is good everybody's nice um coming back and seeing the drastic changes and it was I mean it was good and bad like seeing the development um in terms of infrastructure was definitely amazing but there was also this huge even more inequities and and you know it was it's I moved uh, to Dakar the capital and before moving back to Senegal I had never lived in the capital I had lived in northern Senegal, so I was just familiar with rural Senegal. And moving back and then living in the capital was was it was it was scary. It was um, stressful. There was times where I just wanted to move back to the U.S. and um, but you know I I've gotten used to it and just you know learned so much about myself and and, and my community. Do you feel more at home now 
Do you feel comfortable? 100%. Um, yeah. I actually went back to Phoenix about a month ago. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Ah, beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. Not a, not a care in the world. That's what yeah. I think anyways. But I'm a little yeah, I was just like, mm, I don't want to go back. So, I understand. Yeah, I understand. So what's this relationship with the French language? I saw on your website 10% of Senegalese speak French at home, even though it's the language of instruction. Is that still the case at your schools and what you're doing? Is, is French the language that people are being taught in? Yeah, language is a huge issue here in Senegal. And, and it really has stemmed from colonialism. Um, and it's very much in your face. Um, if you know anything about Africa, it's that there, you know, they, there were some countries that were colonized by the British and there were some countries colonized by the French. And French colonialism was completely different than British. Whereas British colonialism, they used the kings and it kind of as middlemen. French were direct. They wanted you to be French. You spoke French. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, yeah, become French. And so that meant stripping away your identity, stripping away your culture. And they started that with the educational system where everything you learned in the educational system was about French and what it means to be French. Um, and once we gained independence in 1960, we had a few reforms here and there in terms of education, but we still kept the same system, um, which was a means of control and a means of ripping you of your identity so that it's easier to, to colonize, to manipulate, um, and so we, 1960, we still have this somewhat of the same system where all of the instruction is in French, despite the fact that children in Senegal do not use French at home. Mm. I mean, it's just, think about it in the U.S., all of instruction being in Spanish right. or Japanese, and you use English at home. Right. How, how is that? And so um, it's just recently that, they're inter, um, integrating more local languages into the classroom, but it has not been, there hasn't been much drastic change. And you have, to, and the reason why is follow the money. And that's, that's really it. Um, our educational system is funded heavily by bilaterals and multilaterals that are trying to uphold the system that no longer reflects the community. And so many people who, and it, it, it keeps you dependent because it does it doesn't allow you to be to think critically and it doesn't allow room for problem solving. And if you're developing learners who aren't critical, who aren't um, who don't think critically and who cannot problem solve, imagine how they end up in, in, in the future as your leaders. And so oftentimes the people who go through these educational who go through the cycle in Senegal. Um, and graduate, you know, they have their bachelor's, their master's, they are m more confused than ever, which I understand is in the U.S. that's too, but they literally have only been taught to memorize and mm. to recite. Yep. And now you're asking them to produce, to think, to uh, uh, when a system did not provide them with that. So you have so many young people who can memorize, who can follow procedures, that they are not problem solvers, they're not critical thinkers. And so a young population that can't do the work that is needed of 21st century tech, being able to be tech savvy, being able to um, you know, do all these things that require your brain. And so now we're, we, they can't be hired because they don't have the skills. And so we find jobs elsewhere. We hire other people to do things for us because our youth doesn't have the technical tools to, to do so. And it all stems from the educational system. If we would have, at an early age, um, from the beginning, really allowed kids to think critically, be able to read and write in their own language, um, then maybe they would have picked up French better. So it's, yeah. it, it, it's um, I guess when you talk about the language thing, a lot of Senegalese cannot read and write in French because they can't express themselves in their own language. They can't do, read do and write. Do you speak French? Language. Are you fluent in French? No, I am okay. not fluent in French. I am. I never went to school here. So I guess that's, right. that's my. I was going to say, how would, how would you be? But, but it's, yeah, it's funny you but, mentioned that the education, because I just want to jump in there because 
that thing that you just said is literally the reason that I created this podcast. Now, it may be different in the United States, but that's why beat the often path. We were told in the past this model would work. Go to school, get a degree, you'll get a good job, you'll climb your way up the ladder, you'll work at the same job for 30 years, you'll retire, you'll have a house, and that just doesn't, it just doesn't really work anymore. It's failing everybody, and that's here too. So I made this show to show people ways that they could do something outside of that system. That's the whole purpose of it. Because mm-hmm. I think that education is failing people all over the world, as you know, Teach for America here. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, I asked why you spoke French, because I was going to say that that is literally the entire raison d'etre of my <laughs> show. <laughs> That's the only French I know. <laughs> so I completely, I completely get it. And would... um. Is Pular the primary indigenous language, or how many are there that we're dealing with? So we have three main languages, but um, these artificial borders, of course, just put a bunch of tribes together, and they all speak different languages. Um, so I don't know off the top of my head how many, because um, there are like small little languages here. But in Senegal, there are three uh, uh, main national languages. Um, that means that a majority speak. One is Wolof. Right now, Wolof is almost everybody is speaking it as more of a medium language just because people don't speak French. So it's easier just to pick up a local language because it's similar to others. And then we have Sered and we have Pular. So it's Wolof, Pular, Sered in terms of like uh, population, Wolof would be first. Okay. Um, And another really crazy statistic that I saw on your website, you said 45% of Senegalese are below the age of 15. So there's a massive, I don't know what that's like for other countries, but that feels pretty extreme to me. Huge population boom in recent years. Yeah, I mean, this is actually for most African countries, at least some in sub-Saharan. Our population is very young. Most, um, we have a very young youth population we have a really young population, but all of our politicians and our, 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 our governments and our leaders are beyond, or are, 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 the age gap is just ridiculous. And so you have, you know, 60-year-olds, uh, 70-year-olds trying to rule a country that is mostly filled of 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds. So the, the, the <laughs> yeah, but in most African, uh, sub-Saharan Africa is what I can say, um, we, our population is very young. And this is where a lot of Twitter and a lot of these tech companies are now looking to Africa because of their young population. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense. So then I guess for you, you're going into the children, I assume. So at what age does your work begin currently for Teach for Senegal? So um, we, in terms of our, our fellows, we start, um, we don't have an age it's more of like a have your high school diploma plus two years of college. Um, and they currently teach uh, in the U.S. I guess it would be like kinder and first grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the fact that we have such a young population for me was crucial to add in a leadership development element to our program. Because if we, these are the people that are going to be leading Senegal in the next few years. So, um, we have a conscious leadership element to our program where our fellows go through a lot of self-work, self-reflection, trauma, um, you know, in terms of leadership because leaders and what they consider leadership um, isn't necessarily what we, what you would consider good leadership. It's very much more of a dictatorship and type mm-hmm. of leadership. Well, <laughs> I'm really... I'm really fascinated by the idea that you get to create the curriculum. You get to create the thing that you feel was missing previously. So when you're building out your own curriculum, what did you prioritize? How did you start doing that? What did you want to teach and how? Yeah, so with the curriculum, we were so glad to. So I don't think when it comes to tackling education, I think you should do it on your own. I think that you should always try to find other people who are also on a mission to do the same thing that you are. And we were so thankful to have found a local partner who was also working on uh, local languages and incorporating them into the classroom. And so we really wanted to focus on, uh, first of all, we wanted to focus on pedagogy, like actual teaching, um, because like the, the skills and, uh, and, 
and uh, practices, best practices when it comes to teaching. Um, we wanted to focus on psycholo- uh, the social, emotional um, effects of children and, and how that is very important in the classroom. So we emphasize that so our fellows go through, you know, the training of, of, of kids and how their minds operate, but also um, best practices. Um, those are the two things that we emphasize that we just felt was missing in the educational system. I think that we, and, and also using, using a kid's previous knowledge. So when it comes to pedagogy, we often tell te- uh, our, our fellows that kids do not enter the classroom with zero knowledge. Mm. And that's the, that's the mindset that most educators in Senegal have is that these kids are coming into the classroom, they have zero knowledge, and it's up to me to put in as much information and teach them everything they need to know because they know nothing. Um, and so we try to really encourage our fellows to, um, to explore the knowledge of their kids and to really use um, community, uh, what's, what's present in the community to, to enhance the learning of, of students. Because um, they don't enter the classroom with, with a blank slate, and 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 our kids sometimes we the 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 issue with power is a thing that we talk about in our curriculum that the way our classrooms are set up lets you know who has the power in the classroom. The fact that all of our desks are facing the teacher and and the kids are not facing each other means that the educator has all the power and all the knowledge, and which mm-hmm. is totally false. You know, kids we learn just as much from kids as they learn from us. And so even the way you position your chairs, um, the way you deliver your, your, the way you ask questions, the way you let kids explore. So pedagogy is, is a really important thing in our curriculum. Uh, on top of, of course, the local language and the alphabetization of local language, it's really more pedagogy, um, power, uh, and the, the psychological um, education kids. I, I love that I love yeah. that concept I completely agree with it that's mm-hmm. that's fabulous alright folks it's that point in the episode where we like to take a little break from the action and remind you that it takes incredible work of course to put on this show for you every week to find the guests to edit the show to do all of the things to bring you these unusual and incredible success stories. If you found any inspiration from this show, if any of these guests has changed your opinion or helped you see things a little more clearly in your own life and career or helped you make that leap that you haven't yet made, then I encourage you to take the time to rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, your podcast platform of choice, to subscribe wherever you find the show, YouTube, Instagram, anywhere. Anything that you can do to help share these stories and help this podcast grow would be greatly appreciated. I can't do it alone. I need your help. I know it's inconvenient. I know it's not something that you want to do. But if you would take just that few seconds to do it, I would be forever grateful. And above all, share her story with somebody who needs to get in touch with her or who needs to know more about what she's doing. That's how we grow the mission all around. So now, back to the show. Now... You finished Teach for America, two-year stint, for those who don't know, because that's the minimum requirement, right? You have to do it for two years. You sign up for a two-year deal. I'm very Mm -hmm. curious about that moment. You finished it. You said, this is something I can bring to Senegal. What was the very first step at that point? How did you start this? So I actually started Teach for Senegal. I was working on Teach for Senegal before I finished Teach for America. Um, I think it was my last year of Teach for America. I was just like, it just came to me. It was, I mean, I don't know how religious you are, but I really are spiritual. But I think that anything that you're supposed to do is already within you. Oftentimes we get these gut feelings or these thoughts or these visions. And it really came to me. I was just like one day sitting and I was like, why don't you just start Teach for Senegal? And it came and I was like, yeah, I messaged my director um, at Teach for America Phoenix. She was really good. Uh, her and I were pretty close. And I texted her. I was just like, so I want to start Teach for Senegal. Can you help me? <laughs> and she was just like, yeah, this is great. I would help you in any way. Let me go ahead. Did you know that they actually have a global network? I was like, what global network? And she was like, there's a global network called Teach for All, where entrepreneurs from other countries who also like the model are, are, have started it. You know, there's Teach for India now. There's Teach for Ghana. 
and they've all come together and created a global network with Wendy, who is the, the, the founder of Teach for America. And there is a global network called Teach for All. I, she connected me with them. I started working with them and started to meet other CEOs from other countries who are also doing the same thing, who are on the same path as me, or who were on the same path as me. And, and that's kind of how the journey began. You know, I started to talk to Teach for Haiti CEO, Teach for Ghana and, you know, Armenia. And I was, you know, and then one thing left to another and here I am. <laughs> and you were the first French-speaking West African country to join that network, right? Yeah, we were the first uh, French-speaking Yeah. That's mm-hmm. so incredible. And you've been recognized. You said Echoing Green. You became Echoing Green Fellow. Also, you partnered with the United States African Development Foundation. How did that happen? Yeah, so it was, thankfully for our partnership with Echoing Green, they were able to get us, you know, they we caught the eye of the United States African Development Fund, and they, uh, at the early stages, were are one of our first partners. And uh, with that, I was able to meet other CEOs on the continent who are doing also other entrepreneurial stuff and to, to learn from them. And yeah, it's, it was definitely our part, uh, Echoing Green has opened so many doors for us and they have been tremendous in my personal development and also just as my organization and connecting with, with key key funders, key partners. Um, I totally, I'm so grateful and I recommend anybody with an idea to apply because um, they've truly changed my, my, my life and, and I don't think Teach for Senegal would have gotten as far without them. That's, that's so wonderful. And, you know, you were also named a Forbes 30 under 30 list for social impact, an honor that I will never receive. I'm 35. It's five years too late. I've wasted my whole life. I only have five years to be in the 40 under 40 list, and it's not going well yet. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, no, you will make it. And it's so crazy because I'll make Forbes, it, yes. you'll make it. I, got, I believe in you. Um, it's so because the Forbes thing, it's like when you're young. When I, I remember in high school when the Forbes list came out, and I was just like, I'm going to be on that list. And I didn't know yeah. how, but I was like, I'm going to be on there. And, it's, and it, it sounds, when I got the notification, they were like, you know, they were like, oh, you have been, you know, somebody had applied and recommended me. To this day, I don't know. Um, I just received an email, and they were like, you're a candidate for a Forbes 30 under 30 list. And please fill out this information, your, send us your picture and all that. And I sent it and I never heard back. I was just like, okay, <laughs> thank you. That's it. <laughs> and then the list came out and, you know, people were just nesting me, calling me and they're like, you know, you're on Forbes. And I was like, what? And I saw that made the list. And, you know, it, it was definitely a, a moment that I cherished. And, you know, I don't, think that you know if you don't you're nobody um but there's just some points in your life where things happen that make you as an entrepreneur it can be very lonely and it can be exhausting you never really see the fruits of your labor um and i think when the forbes list came out i was in a very dark place with teach for senegal things were just like hectic and i i don't know it was it was difficult and so being on that list really uh you know brought brighten my day but also just let me know that you know what I'm doing is, is is beyond me it's bigger than me um and that although I might not see the fruits of my labor now that you know 25 years from now maybe kids you know I'll, our, our students will be able to um see it so that's kind of how the Forbes thing happened it was really random um I wish I could tell you more but every time well, people ask like I don't really know it, it's just well, you got on that list, and then after that, you never had another problem again. That was it, right? No more challenges on the no Forbes list. Things were amazing. It's, it's done. Your life, is, it's, you're made now. It's, it's over. It's all butterflies. Uh, and yeah, stuff. obviously. What's yeah. the point of the list otherwise? Um, yeah, but I mean, a lot of people, I appreciate Forbes for having me on that list, but, um, you know, just for a lot of entrepreneurs who don't make that list, I don't think that that's the end of be all. Like what you, what we're doing is bigger than us, and it's really about the impact and the the reason why we got into this work that really matters. Um, these lists, these 
fellowship, these nominations, they're great. They're a nice ego boost. But don't ever let that deviate from from really what what you've gone into this work for. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you've you start this thing. You've got some help. You made some great partners. What were some of the toughest challenges? When was it the hardest? Did you have regrets? Did you ever have moments where you thought this was a huge mistake? I have it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me too, no, me too. It happens all the time. I think yeah. I had regret this morning. I was just like, oh, why did I do that? Um, it's, I mean, I guess it was the, the most difficult was when I first moved to Senegal. I, I was just so lost. And I had an idea, but where do I go from here? Um, and I was very lonely because most of my family still was in the U.S., at least my immediate family, my brothers and sisters. Um, and like I said, my French, I speak French, but it's not good enough. I mean, it's, it's good enough to get me around, but not good enough to pitch an idea to a bunch of donors. And I was so desperate for help. I just was pitching my idea to anybody that would listen. And for the first year, or I would say first six months, I was just like, mm, let me go ahead and just call it quits and tell teacher, tell Echo and Green, thank you, but here's your money. I won't be able to do it. Um, but, you know, slowly but surely, I, I kept pushing. Something said, keep going. I don't know what that thing is. And um, I met people along the way um, that have helped me. But I've also met a lot of people who, have betrayed or were just really not into it. They were just more there for the, I guess what they call the clout. I really weren't into it. Um, uh, hiring people. These were all difficult moments. I'm still, I'm still learning when it comes to hiring and firing and, you know, really take like, I don't think I fully embrace the CEO role. I'm still like, teacher mode. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm still new to this, but I'm learning and I'm meeting some amazing people along the way. But the first, it, it's a roller coaster ride. There's moments where you're just like, this is amazing. And then there's moments where like, screw uh, this. Yeah. Let me go to the nine to five. <laughs> yeah. Right. How easy that would be. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. But, yeah. we, we can't only talk about the negative stuff. So well, first of all, how many children are you able to, or, or people are you able to impact in a year, would you estimate? Do you know? So this year, we've recruited 20 who are impacting about 3,000 students directly and about 5,000 indirectly. So, um, yeah, teachers are, 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 they, you know, they, they're one of a kind. They're everything in the community. And so, uh Every year, I think we're about, and hope, next year, we hope to have uh, double the amount of fellows, which will double the amount of impact we'll have on our, um, and we're working across about 10 communities currently, um, so we're very, very grateful uh, for each one That's of remarkable. them as well. Well, you mentioned that you don't get to see, or you feel that you don't necessarily get to see the benefits of what you're doing, but surely with 3,000 kids, that's a pretty big benefit. You get to see that at least, right? Yeah, I'm when I'm with when I I think I see this more when I'm actually in the communities. Um, sometimes when you're just working in the office and you're not actually with the community, it's hard to see it. So I try to make it um, an effort to visit our communities at least three or four times a month. Um, just not as an eco boost. Yes, that's to also see what I'm doing is, 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 is working, but also to learn from them. What are we doing wrong? What are things that we can do better for next year? But being around kids, being around teachers, being in the classroom, I, I'm really just able to, you know, enjoy and just, just, be, just be in the moment, I guess, um, which oftentimes I'm not because I'm always just rushing and and trying to go to places. But I also just appreciate it when directors, school directors call and thank us, when our fellows say, you know, thank you for this opportunity. We something that we've been waiting for. So 
moments like that that I'm just very appreciative. And, you know, like I always say, this is bigger than me. This is just, it's not for me. It's, it's for the greater good. And yeah. <laughs> if everything went swimmingly, everything went absolutely perfectly in the next five years, where would you be five years from now? If everything went perfectly. Perfectly. Teach for Senegal would not exist. Ooh. Yeah, Whoa. Yeah, if everything went perfectly well, I would hope that Teach for Senegal would longer exist, would, is no longer needed, because all, ch- all children in Senegal would have access to an excellent education that nurtures their, their whole being. So I genuinely don't want Teach for Senegal to be 50, 25 years from now, because that means that whatever I'm doing is not working. Um, and, and my goal is to not perpetuate a system, but to really tackle the inequities that exist. So, yeah, I know that's not a, an answer that a lot of people would. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So five years from now, Teach for Senegal doesn't exist. What language are kids studying in and going to school in, in that scenario? Speaking in their own native tongues um, and, and proud of it. And um, that's not to say that they shouldn't be studying English or French um, because they can. Um, but I want them to be able to comfortably speak and express themselves in their own tongue and be proud of where they take on a language that's, that's, that's not theirs. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> that's wonderful. And um, yeah, I, I completely agree. What role does entrepreneurship, are you teaching entrepreneurship as well? Is that a part of your curriculum? Yeah, for our fellows, um, the leadership, so the idea of like teaching and developing their leadership includes entrepreneurship because after the two years, you know, we'll have some fellows that want to be entrepreneurs, we'll have some fellows that want to continue teaching. So during the second year, we really focus on um, getting in experts in terms of, you know, how do you write a constant note? How do you begin to really you know, how to budget all of that stuff we we want will introduce to our fellows um yeah because a lot of our, our fellows are natural entrepreneurs but they just lack the resources and the skills um simple skills to really accelerate their projects makes sense makes sense well i noticed that we're approaching the end of our, our hour together so i want to ask one very important question what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? The best piece of advice I hmm, the best one is that I received was from my, a good friend of mine who runs Teach for the Gambia was to really listen to your instincts um, and I don't know. I think we all have an internal navigator. And I think like modern society has taught us to not listen to our guts and our, and our instincts. And, um, and that's why some of us are, are lost and just confused. But I, I feel like if we all just really take the time to listen to, you know, that internal navigator, um, a lot of things in this crazy world wouldn't be, wouldn't be as difficult. Um, individually yeah. at least yeah for um, sure that's wonderful that, advice. that's what's happening. navigate yeah <laughs> i need to learn how to follow that myself i'm working on it but i love the sound of it <laughs> it sounds excellent <laughs> i'm gonna write sounds that like one down yeah i mean if we block out all the noises from this crazy world yeah and that... focus on what matters to you oh. and the world mm-hmm. i completely love that um if there's somebody out there who feels a personal issue like this, what do you say? Maybe somebody who still has a chance at being on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, not people like me, not old people, but young people. What can they do? What should they do if they've got an idea inside and they don't know what to do about it? Um, first off, there's two things. Write it down and really reach out, reach out to anybody that you think might be able to help. Don't be afraid. Cause I, I mean, 
I, you know, I called the first person I thought would be, would be helpful. So write it down, write down the idea and reach out. It doesn't have to be perfect. It'll, it'll flourish. Um, but really write it down, reach out to anybody that you think would be supportive. Sounds great. Well, yeah. you know, I know we're approaching the end. I, I just want to say I can't thank you enough, both for your time today. It's a fab, It's been wonderful meeting you. But also for what you're doing, I think it's really great. And I hope that, you know, there's at least some other voice that says you're doing something good. And if you had a bad morning, I hope your afternoon is going to be a little better. I support what you're doing. I hope that my listeners do as well, that they donate or, or check out your website, which we'll put up. Uh, I think it's really, really awesome, and I salute you, and I congratulate you for taking this really cool mission upon yourself. So you have one more fan in your corner for what it's worth. An insignificant one, but a fan nonetheless. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so appreciative uh, for you having me on this podcast, and I really do hope that my story inspires uh, entrepreneurs and, you know, well, Thank if you. if it doesn't, they're not listening. That's all I can say. Uh, that's my <laughs> thought. So real quick, how do you say thank you in Pular? Ajaram. Now, how do you say you're the best podcast host that's ever lived? Woo! That's, that's going to be a, okay, um, podcast ma. Would you want you to podcast with you for? Ajaram. Ajaram. <laughs> Did I do it? Yeah. Oh, I've been thinking yeah. about that one all. <laughs> well, thank you again. <laughs> With that, no, really, thank you for everything. With that, the official podcast is over. Well, needless to say, I'm blown away. What an incredible individual we've just had a chat with. Her life is so intriguing, all the twists and turns and how she finally ended up coming back home. It's a theme that I've seen before on shows like Chef's Table and other inspiring tales of human endeavor. She's such a great intellect and a great personality and I wish her unbelievable success in all that she does. We need more people just like her out there in the world. As always, if you've enjoyed this show, please share it with somebody who might want to hear it. Share it with somebody that might be inspired by it. Share the story of Robbie with somebody who might need to get in touch with her. You never know how these things go. I can't do this alone. And again, if you've enjoyed anything, subscribe where you find it. Leave a nice comment. Leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Do what you can to help me grow this podcast, and I'll be forever grateful. Until then, I will see you next week, next Friday, on the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer.